And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hi everyone, hope you're faring well. Annie here for a bit of politics with your Wheaties. This week we hear from Baruz Bakani, who is now settled in New Zealand after six to seven years held at Manus. He was speaking with his commissioning editor and writer, Geordie Williamson, at the 10th Sandy Duncanson lecture put on by the University of Tasmania as part of their Island of Ideas series. We follow with a little of the online Westgate Memorial held on Thursday by Victoria Trades Hall. Over the Wall looks at the budget and follows with a look at the push to make the cashless welfare card national. And Kevin Healy rounds up the week. Isabel Horton is the last entry for the Solidarity Breakfast Stakes this week from Socialist Alternative Melbourne Uni Branch and she gives a fantastic speech, a left-wing critique of lifestyle politics. Hello, my name's Nick. I present a show on 3CR on Sundays at 2pm called In Psychedelia, where we focus on drug culture, drug policy uh, and drug issues. It's been a bit of a strange time because I uh, also work in the harm reduction sector, specifically going to festivals and parties. So all of our work quickly dried up with COVID-19. But one of the questions that I suppose the festival community in particular has been asking is how do we remain connected? Because it is a community. And I think that's the the first reason that people come to these events. The music is there, the art is there, all of these things are aspects to it, but it's really about the people who are coming and bringing those things and sharing those things. And I've seen some innovation online, and I think that's something that I hope to see more of, more use of innovative technological solutions to connect community, to help creatives reach wider audiences and really build something together. I hope that you're finding ways to remain connected to your community during these odd times. 3CR's a good way to do it, so keep listening. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Journalist, author and filmmaker Baruz Bakani was able to break the cloak of silence around Manus Island while he was held captive there for seven years. In this piece from his recent conversation with his commissioning editor and writer, Geordie Williamson, at the 10th Sandy Duncanson Lecture, put on by University of Tasmania as part of their Island of Ideas series, he gives the view of a fully-fledged political thinker. Really fascinating. The last time we spoke, you were... um uh, huddled in a in a room of a mixed house in Port Moresby, uh, there were kids coming and going, and and now you are free. What whatever that means, I'm sure you have complicated thoughts about that. Can you tell us, Baruz, where are you at right now? 
you know, it's very difficult. I can look at this uh, 10 months uh, or 11 months in uh, different ways, different aspects. So if I talk about in a personal life, yeah, of course, uh, something changed for me. And so I have a simple life like others. I have tried to settle down and accept that I am free because it's really difficult. So when you are in a detention or uh, you are in prison, uh, you are struggling to get freedom. And later, when you get freedom, you still should struggle to understand freedom, to understand that you are free and you accept that, which is not easy. So I think that is a good experience that those people who work with prisoners, those people who uh, work in this field, when the refugees or detainees, they come out, they release from detention, they really... Uh, they need some kind of support, which is this support is not mean that they provide them accommodation or this kind of thing. This support is that they understand them that these people still are struggling to understand that where they are and to understand where they foot, they fit is on the soil. You know, it's difficult experience. It's difficult to express this. But uh, of course, for me, yeah, I have been trying. And Nick came here, which was incredible, really. Before Corona, some of our friends from Australia, they used to come here and they stayed with me. So we, so Nick came here, we went outside. We went to the mountains, which was really incredible. And uh, so all of this, but regarding my work, actually, uh, of course, it was difficult for me to continue to write because everything, the environment was new and I faced a new environment. And I remember the first days that I arrived in New Zealand, uh, when I go to bed, I used to, uh, when I closed my eyes, I used to uh, see many people in my, just they came to my mind, the streets, uh, cars, buildings, you know, city. It was like this, that the city, the whole city with people, with cars, everyone were in my brain. So it took time that I sleep. I mean that everything was new. So of course, in this situation you cannot really write well and you cannot concentrate because you are like a computer that suddenly so much data you enter so that is difficult to manage it you know so of course it was difficult to and I didn't want to write I didn't want to write but later uh, uh, I started to uh, because you know uh, all of my works is just fighting to get my identity back. So when you become a refugee, you suddenly lose everything. When you become a refugee in 24 hours, you lose your identity and you reduce to only a concept, uh, like a, a label. 
And so all of my works just to get my identity back. And now that I came out, still I should struggle to get my identity back because people just know me through that experience. People want to see me only in that category. And I don't want that because I'm uh, bigger than that or I'm not that. I have something different to say because I am a human. So that's why uh, I am working on a, a new book, which is a collection of short stories, and uh, which is fiction. It's not about Manus. It's not about refugees. You know, it's completely different fiction. Just to say that, you know, to express who, you know, to say what I want to say. And But alongside that, I think it's very important because I have responsibility about those six years. And I think it's very important that I share my experience to share my ideas and knowledge uh, in, on base of my experience and my works. So that's why I am working still in this field, I mean, in an academic way. In the, the with the researchers with academics, so now I and Omit and Janet Galbraith and Honey we work on a journal, which is an academic journal, and hopefully we publish it next month or next two months. So that work actually uh, is on base of what uh, Janet did. Janet uh, collected the. Uh, works, writing, and artworks by the refugees from Australia, Manus, Nauru, and Indonesia. So she collected so much works, and we have this material now. So we are working on this. So hopefully, on future, we publish more books on base of these materials. Yeah, so we will publish this soon. But another one, which is a book, that uh, is collection of uh, the, my best articles that I wrote in Manus. So six or seven researchers respond to these articles. So we are going to publish that definitely on 2021 next year. So that is two works because I believe that we should do fundamental work. I don't want to be as a witness, you know? Before I came to Australia, even we were not witness. We were voiceless. And people look at us in this way, that we want to be their voices, the refugee voices. But we have voice. We have voice. And later when I work, people will say that they want to see me in a category of witness being witness and I'm not that you know I we want to be a part of the discourse the main discourse to create knowledge and create our uh, language so that's why I'm working in this way so hopefully on future we publish more yeah so which is it is a long way there is um I 
I, I'm so thrilled that you're writing again, and I'm also thrilled that you, you know, I feel that you've honourably more than discharged your responsibilities to to the kind of witnessing that you speak about. But I, I'm also thrilled to hear that you're writing uh, fiction because I know that as a creative writer and as a poet, that's how you see yourself um, at heart. But while you were speaking, I also thought of you in terms of Kurdish experience. And I, for people who are listening who may not really have a, 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 a real grasp of what the Kurd situation is. I mean, you are the largest stateless population without a state in the world. You have been uh, murdered and disenfranchised and displaced for so long by not only the Iranians, but Iraqis, Turks. You have no friends, as the title of your book says. I wondered now that you've been able to leave Manus and create your new life, that you might see yourself more in the sense of a Kurdish exile tradition, that you are a Kurd who, because you can't be at home, must write about Kurdish things from a long way away. Is that, is that close to where you are or is it more complex than that? Yeah, I think that is very important issue, important subject that you raise. Yeah, thank you very much for raising that. Because everywhere I go, people just want that I talk about my experience uh, as a refugee and talk about my work as a refugee. So I think that is important because uh, the reason I use that title, No Friend But The Mountains, is because that title is written to the history of resistance in Kurdistan. So the Kurdish people have been resisting and fighting and struggling to uh, create change, to get their uh, basic rights. And that's why, uh, but always, in many times in the first uh, world war, and you know, there recently, three or four years ago, when there was a referendum in Kurdistan, north of Iraq, that no one in this world supported the, those people who 96 people uh, voted yes. And the most closest one was in Rojava, in Syria, that how Kurdish people, uh, Kurdish fighters were actually had the huge and great role to defeat uh, ISIS. And later, American superpowers left them alone. So, I mean, uh, that is a part of history of Kurdistan. And uh, the reason I use that title, because I believe that colonialist mentality is same everywhere. There is no difference in Australia, New Zealand, uh, Iran. Everywhere is same because people who have power, they don't want to share that power. You know, they don't want to share that power. And in feminism, we have that. You know, I mentioned feminism because uh, now it is a more uh, uh, 
public culture and knowledge and people really uh, understand this, that men don't want to share their power. They don't want to be equal. So that is, that happened in minorities too. So everywhere, colonialism has, uh, is with the same mentality. So in Kurdistan, so what I believe, I believe that what's happened with the refugees in Manusala and Nauru is on based of colonialist history in Australia and is linked to the colonialist history in Australia. And that is same. And that is written and relate to my experience as a court because I was born in a colonialist system and that system still continues. So what's happened, I use that title to uh, my book just to link them together to introduce uh, people. And what's happened in Manus? I did nothing. I just borrow the resistant culture, cultural elements in Kurdistan that already exist on basis of 100 years struggling. I just, I use that culture and I reproduce it in Manus Island in a different context but in some ways in the same context. So what is that culture? Is that Kurdish people never introduce themselves and present themselves as a victim. Kurdish people never see themselves as a victim and they always struggle. And in Manus Island, I challenge that uh, concept. Actually, I'm not agree with this title of this event that isolated from justice, you know, that is in the category of victim in some ways, you know, I mean, that that is a part of Kurdish culture and I reproduce it. Another thing in Kurdish culture, Kurdish resistance uh, is fighting and struggle to create a fundamental change. And in Manus Island, I didn't fight to make the situation better there. I wanted to, I was fighting to create change for everyone. And that is very relate. Yeah, thank you very much for raising that. Yeah. There is some, I'm, I'm thinking now, I mean, there were many times during the path to publication of No Friend when you and I both and Omid and all of the wonderful people around you who were trying to help you through felt that it was a very difficult process. It was fraught. It was hard. And there were times when I personally didn't know whether the book would be published. But looking back now, years later, and the effect that it has had, I feel ashamed that we aren't braver about asserting that change can occur if if the voice is eloquent enough and urgent enough and loving enough and angry enough as yours was and continues to be. Have you come to have more faith and more optimism in the power of 
words and stories and the kind of arguments that you've just described as being, you know, very Kurdish at heart to really change things because your experience surely gives us cause for optimism. It's really difficult, you know, it's really difficult. That is my experience because on base of my experience, so who I was in Manus Island, those people who read my works, my articles, the book, movie, and they know me, they know that I, you know, I, I knew what I am doing. You know, I knew what I am doing. And now I, I know what I am doing and I'm aware of that. And I think that is important that we acknowledge that. But after such a long time to create those works, still, still, and, you know, challenge the language, challenge the narrative towards the refugees, challenge the... Uh, language of the power structure after all of this you know many people still look at me in the category uh they victimize me they want to see me in that uh, category you know that shows that how is difficult and if i see those people in face to face i tell them look five years ago I wrote an article about victim and this concept and I have been fighting and I have been, I criticized this concept and after six years, seven years, now you look in, sit in front of me and you look at me in a category that I was the first person who criticized that. So that means how is difficult really to challenge people's imagination. It's not easy. We cannot challenge that. We cannot uh, create change only by writing a book or a movie or, you know, it is a movement. It's take uh, years and years. And I think feminism is a, for me, feminism is a great model, great example that now really we are seeing some change. Now we are facing a generation that men, not all of them, but many of them, they want to really uh, understand and learn. I think that is a huge achievement. That is a huge achievement. That happened for the minorities too, for refugees, for people who marginalized, but it's really difficult. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. 
unforgettable scene of the greatest industrial disaster in Australian history, a site that will long be talked about. The enormity of the tragedy is becoming more evident as more than 24 hours have passed and still the bodies are coming out. A short while ago, three more were removed and men are still digging for the bodies of mates in the wreckage. It'll be a scene not easily forgotten for many reasons. For the men who worked on the ill-fated project, it was an unhappy job from the start, plagued with industrial unrest and the constant fears of men expected to accept the reassurances of the experts that nothing could go wrong. Now it's up to the experts to find out what did go wrong and for the unions to decide whether to accept their assurances again before sending their men back to work. Members of all unions whose members were involved in the bridge construction met at 10 o'clock this morning to discuss several resolutions, among them to stop work indefinitely and to call for a full consultation with the construction company and all authorities involved in the project. The men were very jumpy as Union Delegate Norm Wallace arrived on the site to tell them of the decisions of the meeting and to direct that no further work be carried out until the unions had made their own independent investigation. Certainly at this stage we're, uh, we're not agreeing to any of our blokes going up there. Well, the engineers will check it out anyway today. Well, experts are one thing, our men are another thing. We're going to be guided by what our men have to say. Tony, how do the boys feel about it at the moment? You've uh, you lost half your mates in one hit, you know. How did they feel about the project before this happened? The Were they happy with it? That's been the unhappiest job ever. I, I never worked on a worse job than this job yesterday morning. There was one of my members who's dead now. He wanted me over on this side here because he wasn't happy with what was happening. And he was told by a foreman it was all right, it was safe enough. Now that foreman's dead too. So your fellas weren't happy with the job right along? Never. How are your fellas going to feel about going back to work on this job? I'll tell you what, the behalf of them won't get back to there, mate. What you about know? you? I'll, I'll go back on it. I've been on it from a word go. Put it this way here, if you're a rigger and you fall, you got to go back up there again or you don't, you don't work again. Victor Gerardo was one of the 35 workers who lost their life in the Westgate Bridge collapse. It's unfortunate we can't come together today as a family and a movement to mark this very special occasion, 50 years on since the Westgate Bridge collapse. Firstly, I'd like to thank all those who have made today happen, Trades Hall and the Westgate Bridge Committee. I've been attending the Westgate Bridge Memorial Service since I was a kid. My family, the Gerard family, meet at the base of the bridge each year and were always greeted by committee members and organisers. I'd also like to thank all those who are paying their respects online today, whether you're at home or in the workplace. From my family to yours, thank you. I want to talk to you today about Victor Gerardo, my Nunnal and his family. Victor's mum sent him to Australia. He came from Malta to Melbourne in the mid-1950s when he was just 16 years old. Like many before him and since, he was in search of a better life. Victor left behind his fiancée, Doris, my nonna, in Malta. They kept in touch by writing letters to each other and he soon convinced her to come out to Australia and join him. They settled down in Altona in Melbourne's west and he got a job at the Glassworks. They started a family together. They had four kids, Joe, Charlie, my mother Rita, and Stephen, the youngest son. Victor then got a job as an iron worker on the Westgate Bridge. And in the week leading up to the collapse, he confided in Doris that he felt the bridge move, but he convinced himself that it must have been the wind. On the 15th, Doris received a phone call from a friend and she told her that something had happened at the bridge and she offered to drive her there. 
Once Doris got to the scene, she ran over to the incident and she was held back by police officers. All she could see was men being carried out on stretchers. She seen Victor's hand, but his body was covered in a white sheet. It goes without saying, but my family's lives were changed from then on. Victor's widow, Doris, was left to raise four kids under the age of 10 in a foreign country, and English wasn't her first language. Doris had to work multiple jobs just to make ends meet. She was working in an abattoir at one point and was initially placed with the other Maltese workers. Doris was and still is a little feisty, so when she would get into a fight at work, the boss would move on to another group. Uh, she got to work with the Greeks and then the Italians and then the Poms, then the Aussies, and then she was just moved on to the work experience kids. When Stephen, Victor and Doris's youngest son, was still a baby, Doris had his name changed to Victor in memory of his father. Doris tells me that Victor was one of the kindest men she had ever met and you could travel around the world and never meet another man just like him. The effects of the Westgate Bridge loom heavy over my family, Doris, her four children and 12 grandchildren. However, this story of loss and hardship is not unique just to our family. This year alone, 121 people have lost their lives at work, 183 the year before. Those numbers don't just represent an, an individual, but they represent the family, the children, the workmates that they leave behind. I'd like to thank the trade union movement. You guys play a critical role in keeping workplaces safe and ensuring that workers get to go home to their family at the end of each working day. Thank you again to all those who have joined us online today. And thank you again to the Westgate Bridge community for helping us mark this very special occasion. Long may we remember the fallen and the injured workers and the lessons learned from the tragedy. It must never be forgotten. Thank you.
this is Liz Stringer and you're listening to the mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham and this is Over the Wall. Today, we interrupt our series on tenancy issues to break in with a report on the 2020 federal budget delivered last Tuesday. by our values. Our circumstances may have changed, but our values endure, providing a helping hand to those who need it. Personal responsibility, reward for effort, the power of aspiration. We owe it to the next generation to ensure a strong economy so that their lives are filled with the same opportunities and possibilities that we have enjoyed. That was Josh Frydenberg delivering his budget speech on Tuesday. The budget was delayed from its usual date in May as a response to the COVID-19 crisis. The next budget is due to come in May of 2021. Like most budgets, there was a mix of disappointments and inspirations, of opportunities lost and opportunities taken. But in the greatest recession in at least 28 years, and with staggering amounts of money being thrown about, every budgetary policy has that much more clout, to more hurt or more help. Let's be kind and start with the good news. There's a new policy on superannuation. Millions of Aussies have super accounts. There's more than 2 million have multiple accounts, racking up extra fees to the tune of half a billion dollars. Well, that's about to change. Super will now be stapled, meaning that as you start a new job, your old super provider will be your default account, and the same account will follow you from job to job. There will also be a new website called Your Super, which will show funds that underperform as well as those that are great earners, which are mostly industry funds, so you can easily compare good funds from duds. Also, there is no plan for a further tranche of voluntary $10,000 withdrawals from super, like the two tranches that happened this year in response to COVID-19. I think that's great because evidence suggests that the withdrawals so far this year, though only totalling $30 billion out of a total of $3 trillion in super, have wiped out balances for hundreds of thousands of Australians, as well as hundreds of thousands of dollars each of benefit on maturity. The final link in the super story is that these reforms, when read with government commentary through the year, suggest that the increase to the super rate from a 9.5% to 12% over the coming years is less likely to be jettisoned by the government. Another bouquet goes to foreign aid, with $300 million going to Pacific Nations and East Timor for recovery efforts related to the pandemic, as well as $23 million specifically for vaccine delivery when available. Although it is unclear with both these items whether they are additional to or included within the overall $4 billion foreign aid budget. The NDIS just got $4 billion extra on its budget and the aged home care package got $1.6 billion for 23,000 additional home care places. But that's only 6000 per year. There's 100,000 on the waiting list and 30,000 people on the waiting list have already died waiting for a package since its inception several years ago. 
Then there's iron ore. The budget has assumed that its price will fall to $55 per tonne. But there's a good possibility that it will stay high, which could mean an extra $6 billion in tax receipts not yet counted over the two-year period. Probably the biggest promising plan is to subsidise youth wages. There's JobMaker, which will give employers $200 a week to employ people aged 16 to 29 or $100 a week to employ people aged 30 to 35. There's some conditions. Those employees have to be coming off benefit and must work a minimum of 20 hours per week. The government expects to thus create 450,000 jobs at a cost of $4 billion over a period of three years. And alongside this is a $1.2 billion subsidy to pay half the wages of 100,000 new apprentices. These two schemes theoretically deliver 550,000 jobs at a cost of around $10,000 per employee. And if these schemes are subscribed as well as the government hopes, that's great. But of course there's problems. First, youth and employers have shown an increasing anathema to apprenticeships for decades now. And it's unclear that pulling just on the supply side with subsidies can increase demand for apprenticeships. Secondly, the JobMaker program delivers a flat subsidy of $200 to the employer whether the young employee works 20 hours or 40 hours. So it's easy to see it naturally biasing towards part-time hires, which at adult entry rates would deliver a $400 weekly gross wage, only marginally more than JobSeeker plus rent assistance amounts. Thirdly, the government has also chosen to remain agnostic about whether these hires would be casuals or permanents, so an opportunity for a form of insecure work has been lost. Fourthly, whilst youth have been rather more affected by unemployment over the year, there are still hundreds of thousands of over 35s unemployed on JobSeeker who have no job subsidy support and are facing welfare reductions on January 1st. There's been a 10% increase in funding for infrastructure. That's $10 billion, and it goes out to the states for smaller projects that can be started quickly and can be contracted to smaller firms. The government says 40,000 jobs will result. And whilst infrastructure has an inherent long-term and general economic benefit, if it's measured in jobs, that's $250,000 per job. The largest single budget item is a $27 billion write-off on depreciable business purchases over a 20-month period. When a company buys, for example, a car, that car depreciates in value over 10 years, say, to zero value. Currently, the business would be able to claim the current year's depreciation, or 10% of the purchase price, against profits to decrease its tax liability. For the next 20 months, the whole price of the car can be claimed in one go, rather than over time. This scheme is pretty unlimited, excluding only the very largest companies. So assuming a roughly 30% marginal tax rate that is being offset, about a quarter to a third of all depreciable investments by business will be government funded. This is not just the largest ticket item in the budget, but it's also the biggest commitment to what might be variously termed supply-side, post-Keynesian, Reaganomic or trickle-down ideology in the whole budget. Of course it will be a tremendous sugar hit to businesses, but how does it translate into common goods like jobs? Using the formula used earlier, the government reckons that this, 
joined up with a new $4 billion scheme for incorporated firms to write off this year's losses against last year's tax liabilities, will create 50,000 jobs. That's over $600,000 per job, or 60 times as expensive as the JobMaker subsidy. Is it fair to use jobs as the index for all these policies? In his budget speech, Josh Frydenberg used the word jobs 37 times. He made it clear that jobs should be the index for this budget, as in this excerpt. Tonight, I lay out the Morrison government's economic recovery plan to steer Australia through this crisis and build a better future. Mr Speaker, there is no economic recovery without a jobs recovery. There is no budget recovery without a jobs recovery. And this budget is all about jobs. With a million on JobSeeker at its peak and several million on JobKeeper, 1.75 million of who fall off the cliff at the end of March next year, jobs is as good a metric as it gets. In the US, a smaller scheme similar to JobKeeper was created, but with a fundamental difference. The wage subsidy delivered to the employer was given as an interest-free loan. If the affected worker remained employed by the firm for a period after the expiry of the scheme, then the loan became a grant and was no longer repayable to the government. If the worker lost their job after the scheme expired, the employer owed the government a repayment of the subsidy. It's what some people call mutual obligation, and it niftily ties a long-term favourable outcome to a short-term government handout. JobKeeper has no such requirement. When it ends, outside industrial law, the employer's obligation ends. Just like JobMaker, where the employer has no restriction on whether the young worker is permanent or casual, full or part-time. Just like the $27 billion investment jumbo, where the employer need not make any commitments to employ anyone. A few more strings attached would have been nice. I haven't talked about the enormous budget deficits over the next few years, the largest of which is in the current fiscal year, a twitch over $200 billion, or 11% of GDP. Chris Richardson of Access Deloitte Economics gives a good summary of why this is not necessarily as scary as it looks. The sexiest single number uh, in this budget is the net debt up by half a trillion dollars. And you'll hear it over and over and again. And to an economist, it's not the debt that matters. It's the cost of the debt. And way, way, way buried deep uh, in the budget papers, it says that the cost of debt, the interest we'll be paying on this massively higher debt, all uh, in, in the next few years, will be less than we were paying in 2018-19. And I think people don't realise that. Lastly, I have enormous sympathy for the various Australian governments trying desperately to balance health, economic and political policies and outcomes all at once. I would not like to be Josh Frydenberg, having to craft a crisis budget that pleases or helps everyone. That said, it is a disappointment that a government with hundreds of billions of dollars of whip-hand has chosen to send its policies out into the world of business on a wing and a prayer and hardly a mutual obligation to be seen. 
We'll return you to normal programming next week. This week on Over the Wall, we speak with Catherine Wilkes from the Say No 7 campaign, who's spoken to us in the past about issues with the cashless welfare card that's being rolled out in more regions across Australia. We speak with Catherine about the current government legislation going before federal parliament designed to increase the number of people on the cashless welfare card and also to move recipients on the cashless welfare card to having to be on it as a permanent measure. The cashless debit card is run by a private corporation called Inju. Let's speak with Catherine Wilkes now. People on the cashless debit card have had their freedoms and their autonomy stripped away. Yes. Without rights for representation. And we're coming up now to federal government minister Trevor Evans introducing a bill into parliament to lock, lock in the federal budget announcement regarding allocation of over $17 million for the purpose of shifting another 25,000 welfare recipients in the Northern Territory and Cape York onto the cashless welfare card. And this bill has the support of Pauline Hanson. The bill is disgusting. Any MP or senator that passes this bill through is committing a crime against humanity. It is that bad because of what it does to Australian people. Pauline Hanson's support is she doesn't believe any of us on a social security payment of any type should have any rights. And you can look back through her Senate Hansard videos where she scoffs about rights. They want their rights, you know, get a job type thing. As though the only way you can have your legal rights under law in Australia is to be earning over $125,000 a year so that your family isn't even collecting family tax payment. Anybody underneath that doesn't deserve to have their rights or their human rights protected, their legal protections. That's what she's saying. The bill also enables the Department of Human Services to tell community groups when a person has left program. It also gives the federal minister power to decide how a person must demonstrate reasonable and responsible management of their financial affairs in order to be able to opt out or exit the scheme. And it also allows the department secretary to review exemptions from the program and revoke decisions allowing people to leave. So even if people manage to opt out, which was incredibly hard and only a small percentage succeed in that, that decision can be revoked. There's a lot going on within this bill. The $17 million, in the previous budget, they budgeted $129 million for the costs for the Northern Territory and Cape York expansion, of which only $17 million is going to be used to help transition people from the basics card to the cashless debit card. So our question has been all the way along, where's the other $112 million going? You look in the budget statement, they've listed all their costs as not for publication. We've never found out the cost for Hinkler or Kalgoorlie, still under commercial incompetence. But so far, with what we've found out there, the costs are so far, if they get this through, is over $250 million, plus the $1.9 billion that they've spent with Basics Card.
That's a huge amount of money, isn't it? To not have any outcomes. None of it meets their KPIs and all it does is destroy people. With the opt-out situation, that on the bottom of the opt-out forms, it says the account remains open any time the minister can revoke that decision. All right, so that's already there. On the bottom of everybody's opt-out form, they just want to rubber stamp it. There's a rapid current Senate inquiry around the new legislation. What do you think about the Senate inquiry so far? Well, for a start, they want this through before the end of the year. What a lovely Christmas present to give to 40,000 Australians because that's how many will be on her when they're finished, if this goes through. And for those on disability, it is a life sentence. It's for the rest of their lives. Because old age pensions being included in the Cape York, those people will be rolled over onto cashless debit cards. There's nothing to stop it from expanding to the old age pensioners for the rest of the country. The minister's got all the power. Pensioners need to be really scared about this because... If they can do it to them, they can do it to you, and they will. They've done it. They've proved it. They did it to Seduna. Then they went and did it to Kununurra. Then the Goldfields. Then Hinkler. Now Darwin. Northern Territory. Cape York. Now you've got all these LNP ministers and senators going, pick me, pick me. I want it in my electorate. You know what I mean? Planned by the government, you know, putting it in these remote rural areas that it won't attract much Attention. Attention. Out of sight, out of mind. People don't even understand the difference between, say, a basics card and cashless welfare. No, no, they don't. Next six to 12 months with the cashless card campaigns. Well, at the moment, we have two weeks to do submissions for this one-day Senate inquiry, which is absolutely ridiculous. They needed a bigger inquiry because there's so many organisations involved. And now there's also so many cardholders involved because everybody has a right to put a submission in. But then they've turned around and said that the report's got to be handed down by the 6th of November. We've got till the 23rd of October to do the submissions and then you've got less than a fortnight for the Senate committee staff to be able to read all those submissions and that Senate committee to make the judgment. But, see, it can be voted the LNP way anyway because any of their ministers can walk in and out and make their judgment. Are the campaigns getting significant support from some of the organisations that support people around welfare, like ACOS? I would like to hear ACOS really stand up against the cashless debit card a lot more because you can raise the rate all you like. The raise the rate is to make people's lives livable, right? It means nothing if it's on a cashless debit card and the person is controlled and everything's removed for them. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely unbearable. So, so, yeah, raise the rate, but it goes on the cashless debit card. The government's not stupid. We're ready for that one to come up. You know what I mean? Oh, we'll raise the rate, but you all got to go on cards. Because remember, the nationals want everybody under 35 on it. The fact that all of our workers are part-time workers, we've got so many casual workers on this card, it's ridiculous. But, yeah, ACOS needs to stand up a lot more. A lot of the others have to realise the impact this has on their people because it's all mute. If you're not going to stand up and protect the rights of people on Social Security from being usurped by Indu, I don't know what to say. From my perspective, it's very isolating because these people, oh, thank you for your concerns. And I'm like, where's your outrage? Where's your outrage? This is what's going to be happening to these people.
is nobody angry enough to stand up and say no? You know what I mean? All the Aboriginal community is saying no. Most of the welfare sector is saying no. ACOS says no, but all I've seen for the last 12 months is raise the rate campaign and not very much about stop the cashless debit card. I don't think people realise the damage this thing is doing to people and how much control Indu has. To conclude today's edition of Over the Wall, we'll ask Catherine Wilkes about the Say No 7 campaign and information people can find out. SN7 Resources group page, all of the information is there. Okay, so people can go there, read it, learn it, use it, share it. You can't comment on that page. The No Cashless Welfare Debit Card Australia Facebook community page is an open page for discussion. That's for everybody around the country and on the card, you know. So we've used one as a resource page where people can go to to look up information and use it, find the information that you want. And if people don't want this card to come to them and they don't want the card to go any further, go and stand outside your local LNP or One Nations office and protest. Make yourself a sign. If you don't want this for you, don't sit down and let this happen to your neighbour or your brother or your sister or your mum or dad or grandma, okay? People need to actually get very vocal around the country. The government needs to see the people saying no. This is a public service announcement. And number two, you have the right. Hi, I'm Judith Ehrlich. I'm the director of the film, The Boys Who Said No, Draft Resistance in the Vietnam War. I'm really pleased to be here on 3CR. I'm an old listener-sponsored radio producer myself and worked at the first listener-sponsored station in the world, KPFA, Berkeley, part of the Pacifica Network. So good work. Keep it up. Thanks. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when Lord Rupert of Wapping, through his quality tabloid The Wapping Sin, continues his promotion day after day of the pejorative Dan government all over P1 and page after page inside. One of the very, very clever headlines this week, The Shady Bunch. <laughs> Get it? Subtle but so clever. So very, very clever. With a feature article inside by its neutral election analyst, Jeff Footinmouth. Uh, yes, yes, that's the same Jeff Foot in mouth who used to be big, caring, business class party supremo, but now a Lord Rupert of Wapping independent observer who independently, neutrally wrote the socialist government was lying. Lying. Anathema to poor Principal Jeff. And truth will always prevail, he said, and... Yes, yes, this is the same Jeff Footinmouth who promised us our electricity and gas would be almost free after he privatised the state-owned power utilities. All Melbourne's transport problems would be over once he signed off on the privately owned City Link, which has had its owner, Transfer Your Wealth Urban, laughing all the way to the bank ever since. Closing public hospitals would work wonders for our health care. Privatising government and local government jobs would save us trillions, a litany of promises that the private sector running the state would be nirvana within paradise. 
Yet, despite this balanced reporting, former big supremo little Kevin Rod for the workers reckons we need a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission into Lord Rupert's empire. For goodness sake, if the aphorism, any publicity is good publicity, is accurate, the pejorative Dan and the team's fortunes are soaring by the day. On State Big Supremos, one of the strangest pieces of censorship we've struck in a long, long time. In the Mummers and the Puppers hit Creek Alley, a line that mentions Maguire, and Maguire, da 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 I was going to quote the whole line, but realised there's a clear double entendre, and I didn't want to go there. Check it out for yourself if you like. Although there is one safer line, and Maguire, just a catch and fire. Although not necessarily safe in the context of the other two. Maguire gets three mentions, but apparently it's now illegal in New South Wales to play Creek Alley without deleting or bleeping out the name Maguire. How strange. Honest answer here, listener. If 10 days ago we'd said which of the people were having sex and who wasn't, Jamie Puker, Mariah Kerry and New South Wales big caring business class party supremo Gladys bury it if I can, I'll bet 100% of us would have said and 100% of us would have been wrong. Presuming Mariah's telling the truth, still some people deserve each other. Vox Pop on the ABC asking people's opinions on the corruption evidence and one bloke said, until yesterday... I'd never heard of her. And I thought, there's a classic argument for a selective franchise. And in the election for Big Supremo up in Her Most Gracious Majesty's land, the caring business class party challenger must have been wrapped when her own party referred her for investigation by the election commission in the middle of a campaign. That'll do their cause the world of good. Okay, some people, Jamie, Mariah, Gladys, Maguire, deserve each other, and then some don't deserve each other. Although, given the unmasked, packed-in-together maniacs cheering and rallying who vote for him, maybe they do. Whatever, it's obvious the dear baby Jesus looked lovingly on the Rose Garden gathering to announce bringing the law of the dear baby to the US of the UN of the US of the World Supreme Court, because obviously the Holy Spirit descended on and blessed the gathering by giving so many of them the China virus. I now think God gave me the China virus as a blessing, best blessing ever, ever. The big supremo Donald Trample the poor displayed his Christian humility and innate modesty as the statement revealed he realizes there is another God in the image of Donald, image of himself. Don't be afraid, best pandemic ever, ever. The vice-presidential so-called debate was ruined by so few interruptions, meaning we could often hear what they were saying, like Kamala harassed the poor, declaring there couldn't be a more fundamental difference between Donald Trump or the poor and Joe Biden capital than on the economy. And I thought, well, yeah, I think there could be a more fundamental difference, but seeing their bidding to run the biggest, greatest little economic order 
Thermal Nation, on behalf of its caring business class practitioners, we won't be holding our collective breaths. And then Mike Dollars and Pence said gatherings like the Rose Garden Supreme Court nomination health disaster, no distancing or masks, showed how Donald and the team, or which is Donald and Donald, respected the freedom of the American people. We trust the American people. Trust them, obviously, to show absolute disregard for themselves and those around them their freedom to catch the Chinese virus. Perhaps like Donald, hoping for this gift from God, the sacred freedom and trust gift, to be laid up in a hospital bed or carried out in a box. And that pretty much sums up that debate. Donald's nomination in that garden party health disaster, Amy Catholic Barrett, if you're pregnant, Barrett, told the endorsement hearing it was not a judge's role to determine social matters, but to leave those issues to the politicians. Admirable sentiments. Although, until her wise words, I hadn't realised that religious education, accessible health care for everyone, abortion, same-sex marriage, workers' rights and related matters were not social issues. Like when Amy ruled that overtime payments were illegal and a crushing penalty on caring employers, she knew that wasn't a social issue, for instance, but a legal matter. Legal attack on the freedom of caring employers not to pay overtime. In the not paying much at all department, and will we suspect in the US of those not getting their now illegal overtime in whatever jurisdiction Amy ruled, are not getting paid much at all. But here, see the ACTU has agreed caring employers who inadvertently underpay workers, not steal, not wage theft, will not face civil penalties, leading us to a very difficult week that was quiz. In what percentage of cases, when caring employers are sprung, will they declare the underpayment was inadvertent? A, 0%. B, 33%. Or C, 100%. Tough one, so a small clue. Caring employers always do not wage theft, always do not steal inadvertent. It's just pure chance they never managed to overpay workers inadvertently, a statistical miracle. On people missing out, well, allegedly missing out, according to the usual commie suspects, big supremo Scuttlebin Morlash son, a.k.a. Scummo, attacked critics who suggest the budget didn't do much, as in nothing, to support women in the workforce. And well, I might, some people are never satisfied, Scuttlebin told the week that was. We have taken huge steps for women by supporting their menfolk. Great menfolk as poor railing Jamie Puker was finally released from the virtual witness box and allowed to recuperate from the ordeal on his luxury yacht enjoying his luxury lifestyle off Tahiti and called for a bit of cathartic comfort food. You slave, fetch me a junket! His personal appointment as a crook casino director, former AFL supremo, Andrew Dim Memory Not True, utilised the proverbial wooden spoon he carried into the witness box to dig himself deeper and deeper into the proverbial with every answer, pointing out effectively he had absolutely no idea what was happening in the company, nor the slightest idea what he was doing.
a strong witness, proving what we said last week, that if the Inquisition is to determine whether Jamie Andrew and the gang are fit and proper persons to run a casino, then judging on the quality and morals of those running casinos around the world, they are as fit and proper as you can get. Qualify 100%. Finally, it would be remiss of us to coin a cliché, not to mention this week the 50th anniversary of the Westgate Bridge disaster. Not a subject for satire or humour of any sort, but an event those of us around at the time remember vividly, although not as vividly as the workers on site who survived who have carried the scars for half a century, 35 dead, 18 injured, but the toll never mentions the psychiatric, the mental impact on the workforce, which was the first responder which fought through the twisted remains and fire and smoke to do what they could for their comrades to be gathered in the locked car park the following tuesday praised for their efforts and sacked on the spot there was there were suicides the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin editorialised this week it was, quote, the point when unions increase their fight for safe working conditions. Forget whether that's true or not. This is the same Lord Rupert of Wapping who attacks workers incessantly, particularly the construction union, when they take action over safety issues. When construction restarted 18 months later, John Holland refused to re-employ the shop steward, leading to a one-week strike which saw him reinstated. Today, that strike would be illegal. The union and the individual workers drag before capitalist law and receive huge fines, if not jail. Fifty years of going backwards in many areas of industrial relations. But today, this week, we remember the comrades who lived and died through a tragic industrial disaster. Good morning. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. We are finishing with a rousing, well-argued piece by Isabel Horton from the Socialist Alternative Group at Melbourne Uni. She was talking to the issue of lifestyle politics. So today, humanity is facing multiple environmental disasters, which have been created by the way in which production is organised, both through unsustainable agricultural techniques and through reliance on destructive industries such as fossil fuels. And I think that 2020 has acutely revealed this. We have reached a unique historical juncture where capitalist agriculture and climate change have devastatingly intersected and produced never-before-seen outcomes. Millions of acres have already been burnt. Um, A global pandemic has killed almost a million people and the increasing threat of disease caused by floods. This is the reality of capitalism. Orange hazy skies are the seasonal a seasonal backdrop in major cities and we are told that this is the new normal, that toxic air is something that we just need to adjust to. And, we're not, and when we're not being fed these deceptions, we are told that perhaps if we all rode our bicycle more, used a reusable coffee cup and switched off our lights, that we wouldn't be in this mess. However, it is a distortion of reality to suggest that how individuals spend their money can fundamentally change the world. If we want to challenge climate change, lifestyle politics must be reckoned with. The left must must push beyond consumerist choices as an avenue for change if it seeks to prevent runaway climate change from occurring. 
the shift of the blame for climate change and ecological destruction onto workers is an offensive tactic deployed by the ruling class, which stops people from realising their collective interest in overthrowing this destructive system. By curbing the enthusiasm of the working class, who are increasingly taking up environmental questions onto a convenient path of consumption, necessary political actions can be prevented. Demands that should be put onto companies are instead being placed back onto the individual. Lifestyle politics are a middle-class way of attempting to change the world and therefore will never be able to garner the attention of the masses of the working class, which is necessary if we want systemic change. If we want to save the planet, we need to root our politics in the cause of climate change, which is capitalism. It is scientifically acknowledged with almost complete consensus that processes of environmental degradation and global warming sharply accelerated with the shift from feudalism to capitalism. Thus, it is necessary to root the origins of ecological destruction in capitalism, not in human behaviour itself. If capitalism continues on its current trajectory, it threatens to destabilise entire ecosystems. Islands are at risk of being completely submerged by rising sea levels and fires threaten to kill millions of people annually. These are just some of the examples of the implications of runaway climate change. If capitalism prevails, the environmental destruction it will reap on the world will lead to an uninhabitable planet for humankind. Capitalist industry, however, will not cease to exploit harmful resources and carry out environmentally destructive production methods until the maximum profit yield that these resources can provide have been extracted. As capitalism seeks to continually generate a profit, production must constantly expand and appropriate larger amounts of natural resources. These resources are extracted from the earth, used and degraded for the purposes of making a profit. Rather than produce for the sake of human need or environmental sustainability, Competition between capitalists and the profit motive are the driving forces of the capitalist mode of production. And environmentalists must come to terms with the fact that there is no resolution to the threats of climate change and environmental degradation under a system wherein capital accumulation is the primary goal of society. This, however, is not what we are told by corporations and politicians. Instead, our attention is diverted away from the 100 companies responsible for 70% of the last 30 years of fossil fuel emissions, and it is placed onto the working class's consumption. In order to quell the discontent that is coming from increasing environmental degradation, the ruling class promotes the idea that we as workers do have power to change things, but they tell us that that power lies in what we purchase. We are provided with a very limited number of avenues that are convenient to capitalism that can supposedly avert ecological catastrophe. But these solutions, which emphasise individual consumption as, the, as being the way in which climate change can be addressed, 
not only obfuscate who has caused climate change, but also seek to prevent the necessary structural changes to the way in which society is run by deflecting blame back onto the consumer. These solutions are devoid of any class analysis of society. They intentionally group together the companies, which emit the majority of carbon emissions, with workers who have no control over what products they can afford to consume into an us. But there is no us. Lifestyle solutions are widely promoted because they are convenient to capitalism, because instead of challenging the mode of production, capitalism, they provide supposedly expedient solutions to the existential threat climate change is unleashing. And it's not wrong for people to see the problems we are facing and therefore want to make a change. But individual patterns of consumption are insignificant in relation to the billions of tonnes of CO2 emissions that are being unleashed into the atmosphere. For example, uh, the United States military exerts more fossil fuel emissions than 140 countries combined. So how can it be that we are told by corporations and politicians that the solutions to climate change lie in the choices ordinary people make? The American population gets no say in the size or energy source of war machines such as the US military. Ordinary people actually have very little say over how society is run and what is prioritised. And lifestyle solutions to climate change are an attempt to shift the blame of climate change from them, the ones who are complicit, onto the working class who has no ability to determine which resources provide energy for production, what is produced in society, how these products are distributed and how sustainably this process is carried out. The shift of blame for environmental degradation onto the consumer was a noticeable historical shift that occurred as a result of cost-cutting production methods. The proliferation of unsustainable packaging occurred during the post-war boom due to a realisation that it was more profitable for drink companies to produce single-use packaging than employ someone to come and collect, wash and then refill bottles. This resulted in an increase in litter due to inadequate recycling and waste facilities. But this was followed by the introduction of initiatives such as the Keep America Beautiful campaign, um, which actively sought to shift the blame for the increase of litter onto the working class. But this campaign was established by the very people who introduced unsustainable packaging, Coca-Cola. McDonald's also sponsors um, Clean Up Australia Day, even though it is McDonald's and Coca-Cola who produce um, a fifth of all pieces of litter. There is an extreme disparity between the the waste generated by ordinary people in comparison to that of giant corporations. And companies such as Coca-Cola and McDonald's can cloak themselves and their environmental crimes in labels such as recycled or eco-friendly and establish or sponsor cleanup initiatives that allow them to escape condemnation. Corporate greenwashing is widespread and it extends to labels such as fair trade, organic and made from recycled material. 
However, this is an attempt of capitalism to channel the best intentions of working class people into a neatly packaged commodity which they can profit off of. It allows companies exploiting their workers and prioritising profitability over the environment to recuperate environmentalism back into capitalism. The, su the substance of environmentalism is diluted and utilised for the purposes of profitability. Even when consumers do try and make changes to their lifestyle, they end up being entirely undone by cost-cutting measures. An example of this is in the Australian Recycling Program, which shipped millions of tonnes to waste to China under the guise of it being recycled, but it just ended up as giant toxic waste piles. The same thing happened in New South Wales. People spend their time rinsing and sorting their recycling, wheeling out their separate bins, only to find out that thousands of tonnes are being sent to landfill. Globally, only 3% of waste comes from households. The rest of it occurs in industry and production. And there is no incentive to stop these unsustainable dumping and excessive waste generation practices because they are motivated by profitability. Unsustainable practices will always fall to the wayside in the interest of generating the maximum profit yield. The notion that you as an individual and what you purchase can influence what is produced obfuscates the real relationship between consumers and production. Green energy is in demand by the majority of the population in Australia, but it isn't being used as the dominant energy source because it is not profitable. Bourgeois economists have suggested that full renewable energy will not generate enough profit to sustain companies. Thus, the potential of these rich natural resources, which are far less detrimental to the planet, remains largely untapped. The supposed ability to purchase our way out of environmental destruction tells us to forget challenging the system, that supposedly our purchasing power can influence decisions made by those who decide what is produced. Environmental challenges are thus transformed into questions of income and buying power, but Working class people do not always have the luxury of spending more money on items that are slightly greener. The inequality and poverty that capitalism produces in the working class means that most people cannot afford to purchase slightly greener options. Lifestyle politics can only appeal to the middle class who has the money to be able to purchase these small scale greener options. Often these middle-class environmentalists emphasise the need to buy local. However, this is not even always necessarily better. The majority of pollution, actually 81%, occurs during the production process as opposed to the much smaller proportion um, which is, uh, occurs during transport. Having a globally connected food supply chain means that countries can grow foods that are suitable for their environment. In Australia, rice and cotton is grown using excessive amounts of water to produce this extremely water-intensive crop. However, Australia is one of the world's driest climates. Why would we grow locally what 
um, that is so detrimental when we could grow um, this, these products naturally in another region. It is not always ecologically sustainable to produce certain items in certain places. So emphasising buying local is not a scalable solution to the climate crisis. While some of us may enjoy cultivating community gardens and only purchasing handmade local goods, green consumption choices are both financially and culturally inaccessible for billions of people across the world. Therefore, they cannot be looked to as an avenue for systemic change. And the distortion that consumption choices can change the world is related to the long-standing um, and wrong assumption that the market is driven by supply and demand. However, capitalists do not produce products because they are in demand. They do so because they are profitable. Then they create demand for that profitable product. The majority of people purchase goods that they can afford. These are often cheap industrial scale products. Obviously, this large scale production is bad for the planet and is carried out with excessive amounts of waste. But what choice do workers have but to purchase these items if that is what they can afford? Placing the onus on consumers is an idealist way of approaching the necessary structural change that we need. In order to change society, we need to look at where the climate crisis comes from, which is the mode of production, capitalism. Ultimately, the route of consumerism is an attempt to change environmental impact. Sorry, um, consumerism will never actually challenge this fundamental bedrock, which is the way in which production is organised. Individualistic solutions to climate change are not political acts. They are atomizing. They are attached to commodities, which is a very neoliberal um, way of perceiving change. Thus, these solutions do not actually challenge the status quo, but instead arguably reinforce it by preventing change and solidarity um, and massive actions that are necessary to change society. Individual actions aren't going to solve the climate crisis. And as Marxists, we see change as happening through the working class. We can look to examples of strikes, industrial actions and revolutions as formulas for how we do change things. The Builders Labourers Federation is an example of the ability of the working class to make meaningful social and environmental change. In the early 1970s, the BLF provided a glimpse of what workers' power looks like. They used their industrial strength for the benefit of the working class and the environment. This radical union went on strike to ensure that heritage-listed areas were not developed on but could instead be enjoyed by the working class. They occupied housing to ensure that it wasn't knocked down by developers. They wanted to maintain affordability in working-class suburbs, um, which developers were preying upon and seeking to gentrify. The BLF got behind campaigns for women's rights, LGBTQI rights, and used their industrial muscle to positively change the world. 
Um, and in the words of Jack Mundy, the secretary of the BLF during its most radical period, he said, yes, we want to build. However, we prefer to build urgently required hospitals, schools, other public utilities, high quality flats, units and houses, provided they are designed with adequate concern for the environment. More and more, we are going to determine which buildings we build. The union's green bans ensured that some of Australia's much-loved parks are still in existence today. When workers fight for the environment, they have a significant impact. Environmental destruction relies on the labour of workers. So when they strike, when they say no to their bosses, that is when tangible change occurs. The power of the working class doesn't lie in its consumption. It lies in the fact that production cannot occur without the working class. Capitalists are reliant on the exploitation of workers to carry out these destructive industries. So a collective withdrawal of labour is the ultimate impact that workers can have on this system, which is dependent on their labour. Industrial action has the ability to demand that capitalists cease to produce in such destructive ways. Um, and Jack Mundy and the BLF recognised this and he said, the power of workers to bend capital to their will via the withdrawal of labour was necessary to achieve environmental objectives and success in these objectives was especially important to the working class, which suffers disproportionately from the problems caused by solution and ecologically unsound planning. The BLF was a militant example of how the power of workers can challenge capitalist industry and intervene to save the environment. If we want to address the climate crisis, we need to look at how things are produced in society. Marxism provides us with the cause of the crisis we are in now, but it also offers us a solution. Marxist critique of capitalism highlights the propensity that is embedded in capitalism to constantly grow and utilise all the resources it has at its whim. But humanity has reached a crossroads. If we do not address and reorganise production, environmental catastrophe will fundamentally challenge the continuation of life on earth. In order to challenge this system, we need to draw in large layers of the working class into the environmental movement. And this can only be done through the recognition that the power of workers come from their position as a worker, not as a consumer. Only a break with the entire logic of capitalism will ensure that production is organised around human need and environmental sustainability. Climate change cannot be brought under control when destructive industries are allowed to destroy the planet. Lifestyle politics are inherently limiting and will always remain marginal. Only revolutionary politics addresses the fundamental cause of the climate crisis, which is capitalism. We need to build a revolutionary movement with politics that can address the industries that are destroying the planet by utilising workers' power, where the true transformative power of society lies. Karl Marx stated, even an entire society, a nation, or all simultaneously existing societies taken together are not the owners of the earth. 
They are simply its possessors, its beneficiaries, and have to bequeath it in an improved state to succeeding generations. If we wish to see a world that is fit for humanity, we need to overthrow capitalism. That is the only way. That's all we have time for this morning. I hope you enjoyed Solidarity Breakfast this morning. We'll go out with the Mark Seymour tribute to the day the bridge fell down. Hear from me next week. the